Hello, friends. Nina here. We are starting 2022 out a little different. Instead of bi-weekly episodes, I've got a multi-part series for you on a murder out of New Baltimore, Michigan. We will be releasing new episodes of this case each week. Then we will return to our usual schedule of the 1st and 15th in February. Now, on with the show. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. New Baltimore, Michigan is nestled on the northern shore of Lake St. Clair. The city's claim to fame, according to their Wikipedia page, is that they are home to the largest American flag in the state, a flag that flies atop the state's largest flagpole. With a population of 7,400 people back in the year 2000, this historic coastal city feels more like a small town than a bustling metropolis. In a place so small that having a giant flag makes the Wikipedia page, you would expect it to be the kind of place where nothing really happens. And, until a chilly night in October of 2000, you would have been right. Come with me to the fall of 2000, when a shocking murder struck New Baltimore, and the repercussions of this crime, the actions of these criminals, it was felt through Metro Detroit and the nation. Saturday, October 21st, 2000, was an ordinary day at Mancino's Pizza and Grinders, a pizza parlor located on Jefferson Avenue near 23 Mile Road. Mancino's was in the same retail complex as a Blockbuster video, and neither the parlor nor the video store are there today. In fact, Mancino's is now a fitness fiesta. Back in 2000, Mancino's was owned by a local man named Ken Cook. But that day, the store was being run by Jeffrey Arati and staffed by Justin Mello, Dan Buckman, Aaron Courier, Daniel Adams, and another employee whose name has not been released. Jeffrey was in charge that night. Even though he was in charge, he was a very part-time employee. He only worked a couple of days a month as he attended college the rest of the time. As the evening progressed, their shift was uneventful, but a little busy. The store received a high number of delivery orders, and Dan Buckman was in and out of the store that evening, making several deliveries. Around 5 o'clock, Dan, who was supposed to help close, he asked if he could go home a little early. Jeffrey agreed that he could leave about 10 o'clock, which was earlier than usual. He agreed to Dan's request because the owner, Ken, had said he needed to reduce employee hours. And the unnamed employee mentioned earlier, he left about the time Dan was speaking to Jeffrey about leaving early. It's noted that this employee left without saying goodbye, suggesting that this was unusual for them. However, it's impossible to tell if they left without saying goodbye to their colleagues because they were unhappy, or because everyone was busy, or maybe they were just in a hurry. As the sun set and the streetlights came on, the Mancino's crew churned out pizzas. Daniel and Aaron left around 8 o'clock when things started to quiet down. 
Dan, Justin, and Jeffrey could handle the rest of the evening as the orders slowed to a trickle and then stopped. By 9.30, the three young men were singing along to the radio and throwing pizza toppings at each other to pass the time. It was 9.30 or maybe 9.45 when the phone rang and Justin answered. The caller asked in a softly spoken masculine voice, I need a pizza delivered at 10.45. Justin asked Jeffrey if they could do the delivery and Jeffrey said no. He'd already told Dan that he could go home at 10 o'clock, which left only Justin and Jeffrey in the store. If one of them left on a delivery, the other would be alone inside the business, which was not allowed. They explained this to the caller, but they insisted that they get the pizza delivered as they were friends with the owner, and the owner said that a delivery at 1045 was not a problem. When Jeffrey learned that the caller had spoken to the owner, he asked Justin to give him the phone. Jeffrey explained to the caller that they could not make a delivery at 1045. He said, look, I'll make the pizza right away. We can do it now. He said this because they still had Dan available to make the delivery. The caller, on the other hand, was not giving up on his late-night pizza plan. He again insisted that Ken, remember, that's the owner, said this delivery was okay. Jeffrey relented to the caller's request. You see, Ken did sometimes get his friends to call the store to place orders, and the friends would report back to Ken about the service they received. Employees had lost their job in the past because of getting a bad report from one of Ken's friends. Jeffrey said he would make an exception and took the order and jotted down the delivery address. But this left Jeffrey with a dilemma. He could ask Dan to stay on, but he didn't want to do that. He'd already agreed to let him leave at 10 o'clock, and Ken wanted to save money on staffing. So at 10 o'clock, Dan left, saying goodbye and reminding Justin that they both had soccer practice the next day. And listeners, Justin was not allowed to go on deliveries. His parents said he could only take a job at a pizza place if he agreed not to do the deliveries. They didn't want him making deliveries out alone with cash. It was too dangerous. Besides, Justin drove his dad's car, and he did not have permission to use the car from anything aside from going to and from work. If Justin can't make the delivery, that means Jeffrey, the manager, needs to do it which leaves 16-year-old Justin alone in the store. Michigan law required minors to have supervision when handling cash in a workplace after 8 p.m. or after sunset, whichever was earlier. Leaving Justin alone in the restaurant while Jeffrey did a 1045 delivery was not only risky, it was illegal. At 10.25 p.m., with the pizza in hand, Jeffrey headed off on the 10-minute drive to 5273 BART Drive in the Americana Estates Mobile Home Park. Before he left, Jeffrey took one of the phones off the hook so that Justin wouldn't be overwhelmed with phone orders. He confirmed that Justin could start the closing tasks, and then they would finish up together when Jeffrey returned. But listeners, the delivery did not go as planned. Americana Estates had a confusing layout, and Jeffrey couldn't find the address he was looking for. He attempted to call the customer to clarify the drop-off location, but he kept getting a busy signal. Jeffrey pulled into the clubhouse, and a security guard approached his car to see what the matter was. The guard got Jeffrey a map of the complex, and, finally, he found the address he needed. When Jeffrey knocked on the door, a woman answered, and she had not ordered a pizza. After all of that effort, it appeared this was a crank call. Jeffrey returned to his car and headed back to the store. 
On his way out of the complex, the guard stopped him to check if he had found the address. He quickly explained that he had found the address but hadn't been able to make the delivery. He asked the guard for the time. It was 11.04. This delivery had taken double the time Jeffrey thought it would. He called the store to check in on Justin and let him know he was on his way back. But when Jeffrey called, there was no answer. He rang twice more during the 10-minute drive and twice more. He got no answer. As he pulled up outside the store, Jeffrey noticed a few odd things. The lights were out inside the store, save for the light in the owner's office and the glow of the open sign in the window. The front door was closed, and reports differ about whether the front door was locked or if Jeffrey assumed it was locked because it was closed. Jeffrey entered Mancino's through the back door, which led right into the kitchen. Though the lights were off, the radio was on, and music filled the dark, empty space, echoing off of countertops and bare walls. Jeffrey called out for Justin, but didn't get a response. He turned the lights on and made his way to the front of the store, where he found only half of the chairs were up, and the broom was left in the dining area. As he surveyed the scene, it looked like Justin had been midway through the end-of-night tasks and had just up and left, or he'd been interrupted. But Justin was a reliable worker, not the type to do a half a job and leave. Jeffrey continued his search of the store, calling out to Justin. He checked in the office, the only room that had lights on when he arrived, but Justin wasn't there. No sign of him in the bathroom, either. Finally, he looked inside the cooler. When he opened the door to the large walk-in cooler, he found Justin kneeling, hunched forward and surrounded by a pool of blood. Jeffrey would later tell police he had heard somewhere that you shouldn't touch an injured person in case you make things worse, so he ran to call 911. According to an article in the Detroit Free Press, he told the operator that Justin was unconscious and bleeding from the head. He asked for police and an ambulance right away. Jeffrey waited at the front of the restaurant for help to arrive. New Baltimore police officer Stefan was first on scene. Jeffrey showed him to the cooler, then went back to the front of the store to wait for the backup that was on the way. Officer Dominic arrived with a medical kit shortly after, and he joined Officer Stefan outside the cooler. Officer Stefan dragged Justin out and onto the floor where the officer immediately initiated life-saving measures after trying to verbally rouse him and getting no response. The two officers performed CPR on the teenager until paramedics arrived and took over. Justin was worked on briefly at the scene before being loaded into an ambulance and transported to Mount Clemens General Hospital, where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Time of death was recorded at 11.57 p.m., and the cause of death was recorded as a gunshot wound. I want to note here that Mount Clemens General Hospital was the closest trauma center available to the residents of New Baltimore. The trip from Mancino's to the hospital was an agonizing 16 miles. Much of this spent racing southbound on I-94 with their sirens blaring. I fear that with his injuries, even if the trauma team were waiting across the road for him, Justin Mello could not be saved. And listeners, we'll be right back. Before we continue with this case, we need to talk about Justin Mello and what we know about his short 16 years of life. Justin was born in 1984 to parents Henry and Denise. Justin was their second child. They had a daughter, Leah, who was a toddler when Justin was born. 
Little brother Trevor, he completed the family four years later. Justin attended Anchor Bay High School, where he was well-liked. He played defense on the school's varsity soccer team, and his coach told the Times-Herald that Justin was very polite and that he had a great sense of humor. His work associates from Mancino's echoed these sentiments, saying that he was always joking around in a good-natured, fun-loving way. Teachers described Justin as a good student, and friends said he didn't have any enemies. Justin was part of a school business club. He was hardworking, too. Prior to his job at Mancino's, he worked as a dishwasher at Michael's, a diner in nearby Casco Township. Justin was working to earn money so he could buy his first car, a GMC pickup that he wanted to buy off his dad. Justin was an average kid living a low-risk lifestyle. He didn't cause trouble for others and did nothing to bring trouble on himself. Tragically, trouble managed to find him, alone in a pizza place on a Saturday night. Around 12.15 a.m. on what was then Sunday the 22nd, Henry Mello, Justin's dad, was getting worried. He expected his son home at 11.30, and now Justin was running more than a little late. Concerned that something was wrong, Henry left Denise and Trevor, who were already asleep, and drove to Mancino's. His oldest child, Leah, she was away at college, so she wasn't home that night. When Henry arrived at the pizza parlor, he was greeted by the sight of police cars, flashing lights, and yellow crime scene tape. Henry approached the door and identified himself to an officer. The officer's face fell, and he informed Henry that he would need to go to the station. At the station, Henry was told that there had been a robbery and that a shooting victim had been taken to the hospital. Any hope that Henry may have had faded when the officer informed him that the victim of the shooting was pronounced dead on arrival. Brenda Tomtishan, the medical examiner, she arrived at the hospital just after 1 a.m. She was able to give some preliminary findings before doing an autopsy. She confirmed the wound to the head was the cause of death and added that the bullet was from a small-caliber weapon. Powder burns near where the bullet entered showed the gun was shot at close range. Listeners, 16-year-old Justin was killed execution-style while kneeling on the floor of the walk-in cooler. At 1.40 a.m., Henry Mello arrived at the hospital, followed shortly after by Denise. Henry had the awful job of identifying the body of their son. Mr. Mello recounted the experience to writer Mitch Album for the Detroit Free Press. He described the moment the body bag was unzipped and how his world changed forever. Henry said that the exit wound from the bullet was bad. Henry told Denise not to look, but she said she, quote, felt like she had to. After this gut-wrenching ordeal, the Mellows returned to a life that would never be the same. Listeners, these cases we talk about, these murders, they have two separate but important parts, the police investigation and the impact of the murder on the family and the community. And while these parts happen in tandem, I've tried to separate them out for the sake of clarity. Through the night at Mancino's, more officers descended on the area, looking for clues and interviewing staff at other businesses. You know, back in the day, I worked at Blockbuster Video, and we were open until midnight. So it's likely that the video store was one of the first locations they visited, hoping to find witnesses that could help unravel this horrific and senseless murder. New Baltimore's police chief, John Bolger, 
He arrived and took command of the scene. During the interior search, they noted that one cash register was open and emptied of bills, and early reporting states that an unknown amount of cash was missing from that register. The other register was closed, but when they opened it, there was still money inside. Were the murderous thieves in a hurry, or did they just forget to check the other till for cash? Investigators found the manager's office intact with no signs of it being searched for a safe or more money. Medical equipment, Justin's shoes and shirt, and blood were found inside and outside the cooler. A key ring was found near the cooler. The ring held Justin's house and car keys, one of the few personal belongings he would have carried with him during his shift. Inside the cooler, officers found a hole in the top of a cardboard box on the first shelf. Behind the box was a dent caused by the bullet when it exited Justin's head. Above, there was a box of bags of shredded cheese, and the bullet was found in the bottom bag. Near the blood was a shell casing and a bullet fragment. After securing the inside of the building, a tracking dog and handler were called in to assist, and the crime scene was extended to include the parking lot and the back of the building, although nothing of use was found in either location. Officers took photos inside and outside of the building and took that film to a local pharmacy to be developed quickly. They dusted for prints and found a partial palm on the desk in the office and partial latent prints on the door to the cooler. Jeffrey Arati, the very part-time manager who returned to find a fatally wounded Justin Mello, he was the last person to see Justin alive and they treated him both as a suspect and a witness. While investigators swarmed Mancino's, Jeffrey was visibly upset, crying loudly and pounding walls. After asking him to open a closed cash register, Jeffrey was escorted to the back of a police car to wait while the scene was secured. At 12.15, he was transported to the station, read his rights, and questioned about the events in the hours leading up to the 911 call. Jeffrey cooperated fully with investigators. He gave a detailed statement about the night's events, telling officers about the bogus delivery call, how he consulted with the security guard at the mobile home complex, and how he arrived back at the store where he found a mortally wounded Justin Mello in the cooler. As part of the questioning, Jeffrey was asked about employee drug use. He said he really didn't know since he works very part-time hours. However, he did recall a month earlier a former employee had a friend in Ken's office, and the two had some weed. He said that he told Aaron about it when he returned to work the next month and the employee no longer worked there. He heard both that he was fired due to the weed, or maybe he was fired because of poor work ethic. After a lengthy questioning and interview that lasted most of the night, Jeffrey was cleared of suspicion and released. While performing searches and sweeps of the outside of the building, police noticed three people in a car nearby and determined that their presence was suspicious. The trio was detained, and Officer Dominic was called to take them back to the station for questioning. While initially thought to be suspects, the trio had a very innocent explanation for their presence outside Mancino's. One of the three, a young man named Jason, had found out from another friend, Ray, that there were police cars and crime scene tape outside the pizza parlor. Jason was a former employee, having worked there from May through August of 2000. He was concerned that one of his friends who still worked there was in trouble. Jason, his girlfriend Jennifer, and their friend Courtney were invited to Ray's house, 
and had to drive past Mancino's to get there. Jason asked Courtney to pull into the parking lot so he could get a closer look, and that's when police saw them, driving slowly near the building. After being taken to the station, read their rights, and questioned, Jason, Jennifer, and Courtney were released. Ray and his girlfriend were also interviewed to verify the story, and everything checked out, so that line of investigation was dropped. Ray and Jason did give investigators the name of another former Mancino's employee that they thought would be of interest to the police. However, that line of investigation was a dead end. In the hours and days after the murder and the initial evidence collection, a task force was assembled that would grow to over 60 people from six agencies in a matter of days. The FBI, Michigan State Police, local law enforcement from nearby Chesterfield Township, the Macomb County Prosecutor's Office, and an undercover Macomb County law enforcement squad. They all came together to work on the first murder that New Baltimore had seen since 1967. Investigators wanted Justin's murder solved, and they wanted it solved fast. They followed a few leads in the beginning, including interviewing as many past and present Mancino's employees as possible, before zeroing in on their prime suspects. Keep in mind that New Baltimore was an inexperienced force when it came to homicide investigation, and the other agencies were supposed to contribute not only their manpower, but their expertise in these types of cases. Listeners, if you're thinking they've had other murders in New Baltimore, you're likely remembering the Jabalee murders, and that case is from 2006, which happened a few years after Justin's death. And as a side note, I'd really like to cover the Jabalee murders, but the department isn't releasing anything under the Freedom of Information Act, citing an open and active investigation. So that may not happen. The task force assembled to investigate the murder of Justin Mello wasted no time locating potential suspects. They found one of their early suspects, a 28-year-old man named Joseph Perro, hiding under a bed in Detroit. Police were interested in his whereabouts and in his car, although police records don't give a reason why. Perhaps it was similar to one seen near the scene of a murder. According to reporting in the Detroit Free Press, Joseph was also a person of interest in two other robberies in the area. When questioned, he said he had acquired his car two weeks before the murder from a man who approached him on the street and asked him if he wanted to buy the car, a Pontiac Firebird, for $600. Joseph agreed and paid the man, however, he had not completed any of the paperwork to transfer the car into his name. Police asked Joseph if he would admit if he were involved in the murder, and he said he would not, he would hide. Joseph gave them an alibi. He was drinking and smoking pot in Detroit, and the alibi checked out. He also submitted to and passed a polygraph test, and he was not investigated further. And yes, I know, a polygraph. But in this instance, the polygraph is being used in tandem with alibi verification and other investigative tools. Security cameras were commonplace in 2000, so checking the footage from the night of the murder was an early step in the investigation. They were hoping for a clear image of the killer or the killer's face. Investigators were disappointed to find that the security system had either not been activated that night or didn't have a tape inserted, where once they were hopeful, this huge potential piece of evidence was a dead end. Police were able to trace the fake phone order, but it was made from a payphone at a gas station, a phone thousands of people had easy access to, 
The gas station lacked cameras, leaving investigators with yet another frustrating dead end. On October 24th, police went back to Mancino's to do another search. The store manager accompanied them to turn off the coolers. However, it's not clear why they needed to turn the coolers off. Customer tickets from the night of the murder seem to be of particular interest to investigators. They are mentioned multiple times in the police reporting, and they were fished out of the trash so they could be collected as evidence. Perhaps the police were working under the assumption that the killer or killers had ordered pizza before they committed the murder. Police even removed one of the cash registers from the counter for further testing. Since investigators found a partial palm print on the desk in the office and partial latent prints on the door to the cooler, Justin's prints needed to be collected to rule him out. On the morning of October 26th, officers attended the funeral home to collect finger and palm prints from Justin's body. While police are investigating, the city of New Baltimore grieved. As New Baltimore awoke on Sunday morning, they found out about the tragedy that occurred overnight. People gathered outside Mancino's to pay their respects, leaving flowers, balloons, and notes under the crime scene tape. Later, a vigil was held. 300 mourners met on the Anchor Bay High School football field to cry, share stories, and lean on each other as they processed the news. When Justin's teammates played their next game, they dedicated it to Justin. They were given the option of canceling, but they didn't want to. Players wore armbands with Justin's number 20 on them, and they said they would win the game against Chippewa Valley High School for Justin, which they did. Hundreds of people flooded the bleachers, a huge number compared to the 100 or so people who usually attended these games. The school organized counselors and made plans to support the nearly 2,000 students that went to school with Justin. The anchor outside of Anchor Bay High School and the exterior of Mancino's became makeshift shrines. Flowers, cards, and soft toys carpeted the ground around the anchor. Students wrote Justin's name down the middle of the anchor and the Bible verse, Be thou faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. On one of the sides. Funeral home visits were held October 24th and 25th. The funeral home was overwhelmed with people as mourners lined the halls and flowed outside, waiting for the opportunity to say their last goodbye to their friend and classmate. Justin's funeral was held October 26th, less than a week after the murder. There was standing room only in St. Mary's Catholic Church, and mourners wore red ribbons as a gesture of remembrance. At Justin's funeral, his father Henry read a letter from Justin, a letter that Henry had written as part of the eulogy. The letter encouraged his dad to keep the faith. Justin was interred at St. Mary's Cemetery in New Baltimore. As with most murders, the death of Justin Mello was senseless and cruel. While the community is grieving, his family devastated, the investigative team is working tirelessly to find out who is responsible for the cold-blooded execution-style murder of a child. There will be arrests and triumphant reports from police, but listeners, things are not what they seem. Listeners, Episode 2 will release next week. Until then, I thank you for listening, and please be safe.